Good morning, church. Let's turn to Philippians 1 for our reading this morning. Shall we stand together for the reading of God's word? Philippians 1, verse 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This ends the reading of God's word. Ruby, thank you very much indeed. Well, I'm so grateful to Alice for uh, referencing Acts 17 in her prayers this morning and the example of the Bereans, uh, who were, we're told by Luke, more noble than the Thessalonians, and they searched the scriptures every day to see if what the Apostle Paul said was true. Now, if the Bereans had to do that with the Apostle Paul, you very certainly have to do that with me. So can we all please have our Bibles open uh, at Philippians chapter 1 as we begin our new series this morning? And let me just say that in case you're kind of not used to this style of, of Bible teaching ministry, that our objective in expository preaching is to put the Bible into your hands so that next time you read Philippians, you can say to yourself, ah, yes, I know what this means. So this is a purposeful exercise uh, for your benefit, uh, for the good of this church, and for those that you will in due course be ministering to. So let's have our Bibles open and let's ask for God's help as we come to his word together. Well, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, in October, uh, God willing, we'll be celebrating the 10th anniversary of this church. Uh, for those who've been with us from the beginning, um, our excitement is mixed with profound thankfulness to God for keeping us going. Um, at times, it was by no means certain that we'd still that we'd make it this far. 
but uh, here we are. So now the challenge before us is this. When a church reaches its 10th anniversary, what are some of the things that we ought to be thinking about? Uh, What are the dangers we should be alive to? What, What are the priorities that we need to embrace as we enter the second decade of gospel ministry in this church? Well, as we start our series in Philippians, we find happily that the Apostle Paul spells it out because he wrote this lovely letter almost exactly 10 years after he'd planted the church. Uh, Philippi was a prosperous Roman city uh, located on the coast of Turkey. And uh, one of the reasons that Paul loved this little church so much was because it was his first European church plant. This was the first church in Europe. And you can read all about how that happened in Acts chapter 16. Unfortunately, we don't have time to read that this morning. You must read it for yourself later. But let me give you a brief summary of what happened. Uh, Because the planting of this little church gave rise to a whole range of different emotions. Uh, For a start, there was tremendous joy when the Lord opened the heart of a wealthy businesswoman called Lydia to believe the gospel. And then there was great pressure in the persecution that followed the conversion of a slave girl. She had been a fortune teller, and when she was converted, her superstitious owners saw their income evaporating overnight, and they attacked Paul and his colleagues. And that led to Paul and Silas being put in prison. But then God sent an earthquake. And in the chaos that followed, the jailer and his entire family were converted. Now those were just some of the adventures that Paul shared with his friends in Philippi. And it's not difficult, is it, to see why he loved them so much. He longs to be with them and he's got a great concern for them. And yet, when the apostle sits down to write this letter, he's all alone. He's completely cut off from his Christian friends. He's locked up in a prison cell in Rome, about 800 miles away. Now, friends, you and I can relate to this, can't we? We've all spent a great deal of the past 18 months cut off from one another in a succession of lockdowns. And uh, although people can't stop talking about the pandemic, I think we're all starting to realize that coronavirus has brought an even greater disease into our lives in the form of loneliness. And that, of course, is because from time to time church gatherings have been banned, Uh, our fellowship has been restricted to Zoom and WhatsApp, schools have been closed, separating our children from their friends, and places where we might meet friends, like restaurants and coffee shops, have either been forced to shut or have gone out of business altogether. More recently, of course, those empty stadiums at the Olympic Games and, of course, at the rugby last night were, in a sense, I think, a monument to loneliness. 
reminding us that for many people, even the simple pleasure of going to watch sport with a friend is no longer possible. Now, we have to say, of course, that loneliness was already woven into the routines of our daily lives before coronavirus arrived on the scene. So one particular expert has noted that over the last 30 years, the frequency of family dinners, that is to say meals when all members of the family sit down together, has fallen by 43%. Having friends round to your house has fallen by 35%. And uh, having neighbours round to your house has reduced by 33%. And I find that one particularly interesting because the Bible says we are to love our neighbours. And yet it would appear that some of us don't even know our neighbours. And instead, increasingly, we're doing things alone. So society as a whole is fragmenting. And of course, lockdown has simply made matters worse. Well, I, I'm sorry for starting on such a depressing note. But you see, loneliness was also Paul's situation when he wrote this book. So does the apostle have something to say to us to help us get out of loneliness and into meaningful community? Can he help us recover life beyond lockdown? Well, praise God, he can. Our passage this morning is just the first 11 verses, but in many ways they serve as an executive summary of the whole book. Because in these verses, Paul introduces the big ideas that he's going to return to again and again throughout the letter. So in verses 1 and 2, we have personal introductions. Paul is the main author, and we know that because of the number of references to I and me throughout the letter. But the letter's also from Timothy. And that's because in chapter 2, verse 19 to 24, we're told that Timothy also had a particular personal relationship with these Christians at Philippi. But Paul's the main author. And I want you to notice how Paul introduces himself. You see, normally, Paul introduces his letters by referring to himself as an apostle. But interestingly, he doesn't do that here. And I think that's because there wasn't a major crisis going on in this church that required him to assert his apostolic authority. When Paul's writing to the Galatians or the Corinthians or churches that have gone off the rails, he has to assert his apostolic authority, but he doesn't do that here. He calls himself, quite simply, a servant of Christ Jesus. So that's who the letter's from. Who's it to? Well, verse 1 says that it's to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. 
Now, I'm sure you know, at least I hope you do, that the word saints is not talking about people who've been canonized by the Pope. Uh, In the New Testament, the word saint simply means Christian. So, if you're a Christian this morning, you are a saint. And the idea behind the word is that you have been set apart by God for his service. The letter's also written, isn't it, to the church leaders, the overseers, or as we would say, the elders, and also to the deacons. Now, by identifying these different groups, all the saints and the overseers and the deacons, Paul is saying that whoever you are in church, whether you're the most experienced elder or the newest Christian converted just last week, he has a message for you. Paul wants everyone to hear what he has to say about the gospel and about gospel living. Now that sentiment is then reflected in verse 2. Grace and peace to you, says Paul, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a fairly standard greeting that you'll find in most of Paul's letters, but it's absolutely crucial to his message in Philippians. Grace is God's undeserved kindness and goodness to his people through Jesus, and peace is the effect of God's grace, both in our relationship with the Lord himself and in all our dealings with one another. You see, from Genesis 3 onwards, the entire human race has been at war with God and at war with one another. And yet, because of grace, we can have peace. These are absolutely massive themes If we don't understand them, we won't understand the gospel. But Paul's going to go on and spell them out for us in more detail in the rest of the letter. Actually, you'll be relieved to know that there is just one main idea that Paul's going to keep returning to again and again. The one thing that Paul wants to teach us is that the gospel creates true relationships. That's what we're going to see again and again throughout the book. If you only take one thing away from this whole series, let it be this. The gospel creates true relationships. So in this opening section in verses 3 to 6, Paul explains why he's so thankful for the Christians at Philippi. Then in verses 7 and 8, he tells us how much he loves the Christians at Philippi. And in verses 9 to 11, he tells us how he prays for the Christians at Philippi. So just three simple ideas in the passage. Thanksgiving, love, prayer. We'll look at them briefly in turn. And all the way through, we're going to see that the gospel creates true relationships. So number one then, Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippians, verses 3 to 6. 
Why does Paul uh, come across as so thankful for these people? He's in prison. But in spite of his own circumstances, when he prays for them, he's filled with joy. Now, why is that? Well, I think there are three reasons. First, that Paul thanks God for them because of their remembrance of him. Verse 3. This is actually the hardest thing for us to get our minds around this morning. And the reason is because the NIV translation isn't terribly helpful. The NIV translation of verse 3 says, I thank my God every time I remember you. But the text in the original actually says, I thank my God because of your every remembrance. Now that could mean Paul's remembrance of them, which is the way the NIVs interpreted it, or it could mean their remembrance of him. And on balance, I actually think that's the right reading. Paul is thanking God for their remembrance of him. And the reason I think that is the correct reading is because in chapter 4, verse 10 and verse 18, Paul talks about their renewed concern for him and them sending him a gift. So Paul thanks God for the Philippians because he knows they're remembering him. They haven't seen him for ages, but they haven't forgotten him. And that's really significant because, you see, in the first century, it was even more shameful to be sent to prison than it is today. It would have been very easy for this church to have decided to cut all their ties with their founding pastor when he was sent to prison. He was in disgrace. But you see, the gospel creates true relationships. And Paul knows the Christians at Philippi are gospel people through and through, and he knows that they're going to stick with him through thick and thin. They love him. They're remembering him in very practical and helpful ways. And he thanks God for them. But there's a second reason why Paul thanks God for these people. And that is because of their partnership in the gospel, verses 4 and 5. Look with me, please, again at verse 4. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Notice the repetition of the word all. Every time Paul prays for them, he prays for every individual at Philippi. He says, I'm praying for all of you. And this isn't sort of mindless repetition because he says, when I pray for you, I always pray with joy. What's the cause of the joy? Well, it's because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he wasn't, um, he wasn't just praying about the joyful beginnings of the church. No, he thanks God for their partnership in the gospel from the first day that it was planted until now, which is 10 years later. So 
What does gospel partnership mean? What is gospel partnership? Well, the word partnership comes from the business world, and it's about sharing a common vision, and it's about supporting that vision with time and money. So just turn with me, please, for a moment to chapter 4 and verse 15. Turn over in your Bibles, chapter 4, verse 15. The Apostle says, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the Gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. Isn't that lovely? From the beginning, the Philippians were supporting Paul's ministry financially. So, gospel partners share a common vision. They back that vision with cash. And by the way, it's not just people who've been Christians for decades. At Philippi, Paul says they gave from the early days of their acquaintance with the gospel. So you don't have to be a mature Christian or an elder or a Bible study leader in order to be a gospel partner. If you're a Christian, you are a gospel partner. Partnership also has to do with sharing the gospel. So turn back to chapter 1 and verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. By the way, I think this is probably the key verse in the book. If you want a theme verse for Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27 is your man. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So, can you see that sharing the gospel is not reserved for experts, or the elders, or the deacons? Every believer in Jesus is called to partner in the gospel. And if you glance on a couple of verses to verse 29, you'll notice that partnership is also to do with being willing to suffer for the gospel. Paul says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. In other words, gospel partnership is agreeing that you're going to be willing to put your neck on the line for Jesus. And it's all about doing this as a team. It's, it's about linking arms, if you like, with brothers and sisters in a common cause. So did you notice that phrase in verse 27? Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So it's not just one man or one woman running on ahead and leaving everybody else huffing and puffing behind. No, it might actually mean some of us slowing down in order to link arms with everybody else so that we can all contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. That's how it works. That's gospel partnership. 
Because, of course, the gospel creates true relationships. And friends, you know, as we emerge from the separation of successive lockdowns, I think all of us need to examine our own hearts on this, don't we? I mean, if Paul had um, written this letter, not to the saints at Philippi, but to the saints at St. Barnabas, I'm absolutely certain Paul would be deeply thankful for many things in our church. Perhaps the fact that we're a multicultural family, or perhaps the fact that we're about to celebrate our 10th anniversary. These are significant things. But would Paul be praying with joy because of our partnership in the gospel? How good are we at contending as one man for the faith of the gospel? You know, we sometimes talk about our fellowship as we gather together on Sundays or perhaps in our midweek meetings, and that's fantastic. But is that all that Paul means by gospel partnership? Are we prepared to invite our friends to come to church or to offer to read the Bible with them? Uh, Are we willing to stick our necks out for Jesus? Are we prepared to open up with one another by sharing how the Lord is working in our lives? Because you see, the gospel does create true relationships. Well, As Paul thinks about the Christians at Philippi, he sees them as real partners in the gospel with him, and that thought fills him with joy. And then the third reason for thanksgiving is there in verse 6. He's thankful for their remembrance of him and for their partnership in the gospel, and also because God will ensure that they stay Christian. Look at what he says, verse 6, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, I think for me, that's actually one of the most precious verses in the New Testament. I'm just so thankful that God is not like me. Um, Over the years, I've started plenty of things, and a great deal of them I've left unfinished. But everything, everything God starts, he finishes. Whatever God begins, whatever new life he might give, he brings it to completion in the end. And I absolutely love the way that Isaiah puts this, uh, the way he describes this aspect of the Lord's work in the life of a believer. You don't need to turn to it. But in Isaiah 42, verse 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, all of us, I think, go through times, don't we, in our Christian lives, when instead of being on fire for the Lord Jesus, we're a bit more like a smoldering wick, The flame has almost gone out. Well, if that's you this morning, you need to know that God will never snuff you out. Never. If God has begun a work in your life, he will bring it to completion. 
Why? It's because God relates to you and me through the gospel, and the gospel creates true relationships. So have you got the picture? Why is Paul so thankful for these Christians? Because of their remembrance of him, because of their partnership in the gospel, and because God will ensure they stay Christian. You'll be relieved to know that's our longest point this morning. More briefly, point two, let's look at Paul's love for the Philippians, verses seven and eight. In verse seven and eight, you'll see that Paul talks about how he relates to those Christians at Philippi. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul loved the Philippian church with every fiber of his being. Whatever his circumstances, whether he was in chains or whether he was in the pulpit, he was sharing in God's grace with them. Friends, that is a stunning statement. That's it. We're talking here about Paul the great preacher. We're talking about Paul the great church planter who wrote so much of the New Testament. Sometimes he's in prison, sometimes he's in a pulpit, but whoever you are this morning, if you're a Christian, you share in God's grace with the Apostle Paul. Isn't that a stunning thought? And it means, you see, that what united Paul with these Christians so far away was actually infinitely more significant than what kept them apart. Because what they all had in common was an experience of God's grace. One was in chains in Rome. Another was actually chaining people up in Philippi, the jailer. One used to be a murdering Pharisee. Another was a demon-possessed slave girl now exorcised. One was a church-planting missionary. Another was a highly successful international businesswoman. And yet all of them shared in God's grace together. Now you see, only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can bring people from such a wide variety of different backgrounds and cultures into real relationships that actually last. Only the gospel, you see, has the resources to deal with the sin that messes up our relationships. So please think about this. Friends, how can we ever be bitter with each other if I have received the gospel and so have you? How on earth can we ever complain about one another if I've received grace and so have you? How can we hold grudges against one another if we've received together the limitless grace of God in the gospel? You see, that's why there's absolutely no room for judgmentalism or a critical spirit in church. If I've understood everything that God has done for me in Christ, then surely, surely I've got to be 
tender-hearted and humble in all my dealings with my brothers and sisters at church. And if we've been given so much in the gospel, well, surely we're going to want to share it with others, aren't we? And not be selfish with our time, or our money, or our homes, or whatever it is. We're no longer blind to the needs of other people and only concerned about our own agenda. We no longer discriminate who we talk to or only engage with people who like us who, or who are like us. And instead, because we're fellow sharers of grace, the younger adults in church will start conversations with the older people in church or the busy young parents will invest in relationships with the students. And all of us will want to build friendships with visitors. And the point is, you see, because we've experienced God initiating a relationship with us through Christ, so that overflows into us showing love and care and building real relationships with others. That's what a gospel-driven church looks like. And if God has invited us to his table, and if he sustains us with his food, and he does, well, can't we do the same for one another? It doesn't have to be expensive. A friend of ours in the UK is fond of saying, when Christians enjoy a meal together, the soup may be thin, but the fellowship will be wonderful because we've all shared in God's gospel grace. Later in the letter, chapter 3, Paul is going to be encouraging us to follow his example. Well, if we're going to do that, we've all got to learn from the example of his love for the Philippians. We're nearly done. We've seen Paul's thanksgiving. We've seen his love. Let's look very briefly at Paul's prayer for the Philippians in verses 9 to 11. Verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's he praying? He's praying that the Philippians' love would grow more and more in two directions, in knowledge and in depth of insight. Now, the word knowledge there has got to do with how we relate to God and the word depth of insight. You won't find this word anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's got to do with how we relate to the world. So Paul's prayer is not simply that the believer's love would grow in a sort of airy-fairy sort of a way. No, it is that their love would grow as they grow in their knowledge of God and in the way that they relate to the world. Now, how does that work out in practice? Let's think about that. Well, 
imagine two groups of people in the church at Philippi. Uh, there's Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman, and uh, there's Mr. and Mrs. Jailer and the kids. And because they're Christians, they're enduring, enjoying real relationships with one another, relationships created by the gospel. But Paul has prayed that their love would grow through an increasing knowledge of God. And what's God's love like? Well, God's love is sacrificial, isn't it? Yes? So you see, it might look like Lydia using her wealth to maybe buy good Christian books for the children of Mr. and Mrs. Jailer. Or uh, it might look like Mr. and Mrs. Jailer talking openly and honestly about what the Lord is doing in their lives as they host yet another Sunday lunch for Lydia and her friends. Because you see, that is love growing in the knowledge of God. But Paul also wants that they should be growing in their love, in their discernment, in their dealings with the world. Now, what would that look like? It might mean the jailer kids praying that Auntie Lydia would always put the Lord first in her work. Because, you see, her work is so pressured, it's very tempting for her not to do that. Or it might look like Mr. and Mrs. Jailer gently challenging Lydia about her long-term relationship with that boyfriend and wondering where that relationship is going. Because within the Christian community, Paul wants our love to be growing in knowledge of God and discernment in the world. And friends, if we are doing these things, what happens? What's the result? Well, for a start, verse 10, we're ready for the day of Christ. Now, that's important. Are you ready for the day of Christ? I do hope you are. Because when Christ returns, you'll suddenly realize, if you didn't know already, that it was actually the most important date in your diary. So are you ready for it? A very good test that you can apply to yourself is there in verse 11. Are we producing gospel fruit? Paul calls it the fruit of righteousness. Uh, in Galatians, it's the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about gospel love and everything that flows from that, and you'll know uh, how Paul describes that in Galatians, the things that flow from gospel love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that God gives to all his people. Now, why is this so important? Why is it such a brilliant test? Well, the answer is because it's visible. You see, I can say I'm a Christian. Sounds marvelous. But it's such an easy thing to say, isn't it? The only way to test whether that statement is true is by looking to see whether there's any gospel fruit in my life or not. Because if there isn't, I'm actually not ready for the day of Christ, and it's high time I did something about it. 
And if there is gospel fruit, well, of course, it's not an occasion for pride because, verse 11, all the glory and praise goes to God because God planted the fruit in me through the gospel. We began this morning by thinking of the problem of loneliness. It's a huge problem. We might try and cover up the symptoms by having an over-busy diary or starting a relationship or getting married or spending lots of time with the family or surrounding ourselves with people just like us. But Paul is saying that however good that relationship might be and however wonderful your particular community of friends might be or the family, there is only one way to find true and lasting relationships. And it's through the gospel. Because it's only through the gospel, you see, this is so important, it is only through the gospel that the most important relationship in any of our lives can be put right. And that, of course, is our relationship with God himself, isn't it? You see, until that relationship is put right, we have no security, do we? And, of course, it is security, isn't it, that everybody so desperately needs in these very uncertain days. And it's only in the gospel that I can come to God securing the knowledge that all of my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. I don't need to cover up my past anymore, because if I'm holding on to Jesus, I am eternally and absolutely secure. And you see, if God has begun that work in you, my friend, causing you to hold on to Jesus... He will most certainly bring it to completion. And you will find yourself increasingly drawn to your brothers and sisters at church in true relationships, relationships that are nourished by the gospel. And when Jesus Christ does return, well, you'll have the assurance that you have conducted yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that would be marvellous, wouldn't it? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you and praise you for this lovely little letter. We pray that as we approach the 10th anniversary of this church, that each one of us would examine our lives in light of Paul's teaching. Especially we pray that our love would grow more and more in our knowledge of you and in our relationships with one another and the world so that each of us might be ready for the day of Christ. For it is in his name that we ask it.